everyone, and welcome to the European Startup Show, where every week I interview companies based in Europe to understand the challenges, successes, and strategies used by these companies to be successful here. My guest today is Halmar Gislason, who is the founder and CEO of Grid, a company looking to reimagine and reinvent how we use the humble spreadsheet. Halmar is actually a very seasoned startup veteran with over 20 years of experience, and Grid is actually his fifth startup venture. And prior to Grid, he was a VP of product management at Click, which is a leading BI company based in Boston. Welcome, Halmar. I'm very, very pleased to have you on the show. Thank you so much. Glad to be here. <laughs> so, you know, looking at your LinkedIn profile, it's really impressive how many companies you have started and taken to extreme success globally, um, specifically Data Market, which you founded and then you sold to Click. So I'm actually very curious to start on the personal side to understand, have you always wanted to be an entrepreneur? Like when you were growing up, were there people or events in your life that influenced you um, to become an entrepreneur? Just could you give us a sense of how you got to founding and running so many different companies? Sure. So I, I think that maybe the, what the common thread is I've always loved creating things like just you know, having an idea, then kind of spending the time and thinking about how can I make that idea come to life and then, you know, actually doing that has always been, you know, it's been my kind of core motivation since I was very young. I don't think I ever, like, it was not until my uh, late teens or early 20s that I ever thought about what it meant to run a business around some of those things. That being said, I, I had, you know, I'd been coding and actually sold some software when I was, you know, 13 or 14 year old, but I was more like just make some money on the side. I never really thought about, thought about that as a business. But then I think what, where, you know, where the idea started to come in was when I was in college and I met up with a group of, of friends that were also into, well, into computers and software, and we started uh, talking about different ideas. And the the first business was almost accidental. So we, we created a few computer games. It was essentially what you would today, like today there would definitely be mobile games, but this was in the PC era. So we were creating like simple uh, board games and simple word games. Most of them common concepts, but they'd never been done in Icelandic before. And it turned out that, you know, obviously Iceland is a tiny market, but there was a, a high demand for that in this market. And that early success kind of started us down the road of thinking, okay, so what, what, what is a company? Like, you know, how, does, how do you actually run this? How do you make a living from, from creating and selling something? And, and that's, that's how I got started down that road. Is that, was that the Lon and Dawn company? Yes. Was that your first company? Yeah, it was. So, uh, like I said before, casual gaming and very much, you know, thought just for the Icelandic market. Didn't think too much about it and didn't know anything about what we were doing on the on the business side of things. But it was it was good software and it was in high demand. Huh. And did you sell primarily within Iceland that software? Yeah, so that, that initial software we sold in Iceland, it was actually, it's probably the, the fastest growing, most successful uh, early start that I've, I've ever had. Like we were selling, it was selling like like hotcakes from the very first day uh, and we didn't have to do any any marketing to uh, talk about and, and so on. 
But the then we got like based on that success, we got uh, some bigger aspirations and and uh, you know started actually planning making a larger point and click adventure game for the international market. But that's actually when we realized that we didn't know. I mean, we didn't realize how big of a project and how costly that would be. So. That was a longer story. That game, the game never came out, and and we actually merged with another company at that time, and, and kind of started working on other things. Hmm. So, is it common in Iceland? Like, were you sort of one of the few individuals that thought like this? Like, you know, I'm just going to build something and and then see how it goes, or or is this is this a common thing? Like, how are Icelandic people when it comes to startup and taking risk and things like that? When it comes to taking risk, Icelanders are actually pretty good at that. Meaning they, they, you know, they, they are they tend to be risk takers. And starting your own business is actually not that uncommon. What what we were early doing though is kind of was in the tech startup scene. Not a lot of people had done that. And I actually think that there is there is a clear role model there. There was one company started in the mid '90s that really wrote kind of the the dot com uh, era called Oz dot com Oz. Uh, and they they were you know they they flew pretty high, got in quite a lot of VC funding, you know, got a lot of attention from the you know likes of anywhere from you know Intel to Microsoft and and so on. And just seeing that they were able to do that at that time from Iceland, I think, was a big inspiration for a group of entrepreneurs like myself that came uh, in a couple of years later, just before the dot com era. Uh, and kind of started up companies and started doing something like this. But I think you can trace the that type of entrepreneurship definitely just started in the 90s here. I see. Is that is that one of the reasons you moved back from Boston? I know when you were with Click, um, you were in Boston. Is that one of the reasons um, for moving back to Iceland when you um, thought of founding and starting Grid? Yeah, a lot of people ask me that because I was actually living in Boston when I, I got the idea to start Grid. Uh, I had decided to start that left click and uh, actually lived in Boston for a few months after that, but decided to go back to Iceland. And that may be uh, surprising because Boston is on the top 10 list of cities to start companies, or pretty much any such list that you would find. And I don't know if Reykjavik Iceland is on uh, any such list, <laughs> but for me, for me and for my network, I knew it was the right thing to do because I knew I could come here. I could tap the shoulders of, you know, people I had worked with before, and I knew could pull off what we were uh, trying to build or what we are building at Grid today. Uh, and that would then snowball because the community here is—it's small, but it is actually quite talented and quite high skilled. And I knew if I could get started with a, a small, strong team, that would kind of snowball a bigger. Uh, strong team around it, and that's absolutely what has happened. We have a fantastic team of 13 people here, uh, you know, all uh, and you know, we're building uh, world-class software with you know, with something that bigger teams have, have quite frankly struggled with doing doing properly. Well, um, I definitely want to get into more about Grid. I, I saw a demo of the software and, and I love it. I, I think when you think about modeling and, and spreadsheets, modeling is one part of it, but then communicating that and utilizing that model to make decisions is another aspect of it. And I think Grid really is doing a fantastic job in that second category of, of pain points. But before we go into Grid, I did want to ask you about data market. I'm really interested in hearing about the journey from starting 
this company in Europe? And then how did you go to creating it and scaling it and then eventually selling it to one of the fastest growing BI companies in the world? Yeah, so Data Market was started in late 2008, early 2009 here in, here in Iceland. And we had a pretty clear and international vision from day one. Early on, we knew it could be built from anywhere and kind of we could grab some attention from, from anywhere. So again, got a small team together here. You know, I, I would say there were four of us that really kind of built the core of that core of that product and then tested it out a little bit in the in the Icelandic market, you know, making sure that we had something that was really a problem. Um, you know, data market was what would today be called a, a data as a service company and pretty early in, in that in that space. And when we were convinced that we had something to build on, I moved to to Boston uh, to build out the same in marketing on the, on the kind of uh, the go-to-market side of the of the house, hired a small team there, and started experimenting with you know how do we actually sell this? We knew we had a technology that was solving a real problem. Uh, the problem being, so what Data Market did was essentially we aggregated data from pretty much any vendor of numerical information out there, anywhere from the World Bank and UN that have a lot of these kind of worldwide statistics to local statistics offices and census bureaus to industry. Uh, associations and market research companies and financial data providers, so on. Uh, and what we did with that data, the, the premise was this data is a. It's very hard to find when you're looking for numbers about the world. They they can be very hard to find. And secondly, when you finally find them, they're never in the format that you need to to, to work with them. So we brought all of this data together, made it searchable in one place, and then our users could pull that down either as just downloadable files or using APIs to connect the data to some other solutions. And, and we, we would have normalized the data to a certain degree. So if you were getting the data through us, you could trust in the format, regardless of what the format, the, the original data provider published it in. So that was, that was the problem we were solving. And again, super proud of the technology we built uh, to do that. But we, we were, you know, we, we run quite a few experiments to then figure out how do we monetize that? How, how do we tap into some of the value that we're creating for the, you know, we had a few hundred thousand uses of the software, but how do we kind of tap into, tap into monetizing from that? And that was, that, that's essentially what we were doing in Boston. We were experimenting with different go-to-market models and so on. Managed to build it to a decent amount of revenue. I think we did about $2 million in revenue in, in 2013, the year after I moved uh, over there. But we were still, we hadn't found that kind of repeatable business model. And one of those experiments actually led to a conversation with a couple of the BI companies, Click being one of them. And at the time, you know, they, they had more or less spearheaded the part of the analytics industry that Gartner at the time called business discovery, uh, later just modern BI has become the term. And then, so Click was first in that category, then, uh, you know, soon followed by Tableau and, and Power BI. So the, those were the three big players there. And they were actually, all of them were doubling in some way or another with, you know, giving uh, their users access to more than just the internal data that you tend to uh, analyze in, in BI. Typically in BI, you're working with internal and operational data that comes from your own systems. But what we were providing was data about the outside world. If you need to understand how the economy is doing, or you know, you may have your sales down by zip code, but if you want to know the sales per capita in zip code, you have to have the external information, you know, knowing how many people 
uh, live in that zip code or how many people in your target audience live in that zip code. So those were the types of use cases that, uh, that they were thinking about when we started talking. And, and in the end of the day, they liked what we were doing so much that they, they made this an acquisition offer and we became a part of, of Click in 2014. So that's really interesting. I have so many follow-up questions there. So my first question is, how did you know that this was a problem? Two, did you start out to solve this data problem for a specific vertical? There's so much external data. How did you decide what to focus on? That was my second question. And then I'll talk about the third one, but maybe the first two. Yeah, so uh, as for the first one, how I knew this was a problem, that was a a need I felt on my own so I had been, previous to starting Data Market, I had been working for a telecoms provider for a couple of years after their acquisition of a, a previous startup of mine. And my role there was essentially looking into new business opportunities. So I was, you know, looking into what other telcos were doing, uh, also just, you know, following various trends in the tech market and so on. And then essentially churning out, okay, here's something we should explore, and then churning out a, a business model around that. And especially when it comes to business modeling and, uh, and business planning, you tend to need a lot of this external information. How fast is that market growing? Or you know, how, many, how many people are in that target audience? Those types of things. Uh, and this is like what you are typically digging for when you go for this is anywhere from public statistics like you know population or the break uh, kind of all the demographic information to the types of data that market research companies provide you know market shares and 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 the like mm-hmm. and uh, so it's just feeling on my own skin i also i had a, a decent budget to spend on buying research uh, to, to back up the things that i was doing and i was frustrated with the way the people that were providing that data and analysis often for a lot of money were delivering the data because a lot of time was frankly spent in kind of retyping in uh, data from tables and pdfs and, and and so on so that's kind of where where that came from i just wanted a sing- single place where you could search through this data but when and that actually kind of is a good segue into your second question uh, how did we know where to focus a part of the answer there is we didn't know well enough. We should have been even more focused on that front. But the focus that we had came from thinking about the target audience. So the target audience being somebody that's working in strategy or marketing at an organization and really needs to understand and kind of be able to plan the rollout and sales of a product or you know look into a new opportunity in, in a market and what typically are the, are the information that they need to, to better understand the, the world that they're going after. Hmm, interesting. And then my follow-on question is, what stage of the company were you when you decided to move to Boston? And why Boston? Why did you pick Boston? Did you have an idea that that's where the BI companies were? Or was it just East Coast and closer to Iceland? What was the reason for Boston? Yeah, so the, the reason we picked Boston, so actually we, I, the way we made the decision, we, we knew that we were not going to run the uh, go-to-market organization from Iceland. So we looked through the list of uh, leads we had for uh, both you know, on the funding side, but also on the, on the customer side. And we saw more or less three aggregations of, of companies there. Uh, one of them was London. Another one was East Coast US, more or less uh, equally split between Boston and, uh, and New York. Uh, and then the West Coast. And 
the East Coast, you know, first of all, we felt we could we could easily service or be close to, you know, both of these hubs in the on the East Coast at the same uh, place. And also it was a good, like you say, it was close to Iceland, but still halfway to the West Coast. So it was a good kind of place in between. I had actually set things in motion to set up in New York, but then we landed a couple of deals in Boston in the matter of like two weeks early this is going to be early 2012, uh, and that just shifted, shifted things around and we decided to go for Boston instead, which is, a, you know, I, I definitely don't uh, regret that. I, I really like Boston as a, as a city and, and miss it when, when I'm back here, even though, you know, I, I more or less consider both places my home now. Yeah, yeah. I, I think a lot of Europeans have an affinity to Boston It uh, with the brownstone buildings and stuff. It, I think, gives them a bit of a feeling of Europe um, compared to any other U.S. city. I used to live there, so I've heard that from a lot of my European friends. So so coming back to the stage, would, it, would I be correct in saying that the stage in which you decided to move was you knew that there was product market fit and you figured that out. And then when you wanted to scale the go-to-market, that's when you decided to move. Would that be an accurate statement? Yeah, no, absolutely. We had a product. We, we, had, we had, you know, a uh, fully featured product to address a set of, a set of uh, problems. And uh, the, the, way, the reason I say it like that is, you know, uh, we may not have a fully baked product. We definitely had the technology to build, to kind of shrink wrap and, and wrap in us a product because in my mind, the product is so much more than technology. It is everything from how you talk about it to who the target audience is to how you you know how you frame the value proposition and the pricing and so on all of that together is a product so it's actually probably an exaggeration to say that we had a product but we had a technology and all the uh, raw material that was needed to to kind of uh, wrap that in as a product and then move to to take that to the next uh, through the next stage to the stage of actually trying to wrap it in somehow and and, uh, and get that off the ground commercially. Did you have VC funding by the time you moved to Boston? Yeah, we had some Icelandic VC funding, so we essentially okay. gone through a couple of really small angel rounds in Iceland, and then one we got about a million dollars from a local VC here before moving to to the US. But it was, I mean. It was definitely not overfunded in any way, but it was it was enough to kind of get us there and get us to the to the outcome that we had, which was uh, a really good one for everyone involved, uh, myself and you know all the uh, investors and and the the people working at Data Market at the time as well. Yeah, yeah, no, it sounds like it. So when you were thinking about how to grow the product, you had some conversations with some BI companies, including Click, and that's how the conversation around acquisition came or is there more that you can talk to there yeah i mean there's always there's always luck and serendipity in, involved so we had been exploring the bi market as a potential channel whether that would be kind of offering data market as an integration into some of the bi software in the market or or maybe kind of signing up as channel partners for them to co-sell uh, our products with with their technology but the serendipitous part of this story is that there was a conference where one of our customers was uh, there and Click was there as well. And they get talking over, over dinner and, you know, the person from Click learns about data market, gets uh, interested in it, you know, raises that within the organization. And then one thing leads to another. And it definitely helped. You know, I was already in Boston and that's where the, the CTO and the bulk of the product organization that led this acquisition uh, was based for, for Click. 
Right, right. So I'm sure people listening to this would be, you know, dreaming about having an outcome like that. What can you give us advice or lessons learned in terms of how to build companies that scale globally? Yeah, so I mean, I would actually, I, I probably would, for the data market story, I would refer back to some of the things that we didn't do right. So for example, thinking about com- commercialization a lot earlier in the process, like I, I talked about before, we were more building a technology, we were building a technology to solve a problem that definitely existed in the world, but we did, didn't start thinking about the productization, by which I mean kind of the, the exact target audience, how to reach them, the value proposition and pricing and so on, mm. uh, until like three years in, uh, after having be, being built, building the product for, for a little while. So that would have, I mean, thinking about that earlier probably would have guided some of the product decisions we made along the way and probably accelerated that part of, of uh, the journey as well. So, so that, that would be, I mean, my key advice when I talk to people who are starting up now tends to be, especially around a lot of tech startups are very product driven. So they're typically engineers or technology people that kind of come up with the idea and, and uh, get started. And I always push them to kind of think about, okay, how are you going to sell this? How big is the market? Uh, how big is this opportunity? Have you thought about kind of how you are going to make the target audience aware of you uh, and where, you know, what, what does the customer journey look like? Like, where will they get aware, aware of you? You know, what's the next step? Do you allow them to try the product? What's the price point? If you're going to sell, you know, if this is your goal, uh, your goal price, how many products do you, or how many customers do you have to get for that to actually work, you know, as a foundation for a, a large company? And often this kind of leads people to think about a lot of the questions that they never thought about, like the the customer journey or the sales funnel. They, they are, you know, we we engineering types, we tend to be so focused on the technology and the problem we're solving that we forget a little bit thinking about you know, how it, how will it actually be sold and, and, and you know obviously a very common misconception that uh, a good product will just sell itself right right the go-to-market aspect of it okay great i want to talk a little bit about grid so this is now your fifth venture and you've learned a lot along the way having started so many companies and taking them to successful heights so, and I know that when, when you decided to start Grid, you did a lot of experiments before you launched the, the, the company. So could you tell us a little bit about these experiments, how you went about it, what were the experiments and help other entrepreneurs um, who are thinking about starting their business on how they can test their ideas even before starting their company? Yeah, I think a lot of people will be interested in just hearing a little bit of the early experimentation that I did as the idea for Grit was forming. So the backstory there is, you know, had been a data market for, for a while, get acquired by Click. I take on a little bit of a, a larger role there as, as VP of product management uh, at Click. And one of the things that I realized almost immediately is that where, while the messaging from, from Click and from all of the players in that space, frankly, is that these are, these are tools that are you know, so easy to use that anybody can answer their own questions in data and do their own <laughs> analysis and so on. The reality is that these are power user tools. Uh, and they are, you know, a few people within each organization become experts in using them. And they, they then service 10 to 50 other people within the organization with, 
with their analytical need, becoming like the, the click girl or the Power BI guy within their organization. Uh, and I was super interested in kind of how can we empower the everyday knowledge worker doing more with data. And that was like when I looked at that part of the market, what I saw was spreadsheets, just spreadsheets everywhere. The spreadsheet is kind of the, the thing that people bring up when, you know, no, that normal people, ordinary people bring up whenever they have to do anything that has to do with data. And not only kind of calculations, but even just, you know, collecting small tables of data, whether that's a contact list that you uh, of people that you need to call or the agenda for next week's offsite, you know, those types of things get collected in spreadsheets. Obviously, anything that has to do with numbers, people do a lot of simple analysis or, or kind of, you know, projections and even kind of more complicated stuff. Uh, or even kind of, you know, as I, as I started digging into it, I realized that people do a lot more and a lot more serious things with spreadsheets than I had ever thought about, even stand up small business processes with a combination of, of spreadsheets and, uh, and emails or, or, you know, other messaging. So I, you know, gradually as I looked more there, I, I thought that, Hey, spreadsheets are a little bit like oxygen. People use them every day, but they, they don't really think about them. And at the same time, like, as this is a super empowering tool with an, almost a billion users uh, in the world, they also have uh, some really obvious shortcomings. Almost everybody that uses, every organization at least that, that uses spreadsheets, you know, has has things that they, you know, that, that they uh, wish were, were better or wish were somehow different uh, about working with, with spreadsheets. So there must be an opportunity here. So I started digging into that uh, a little more. At first, it was mainly just what you would call kind of qualitative information, just, you know, asking everyone I met probably to the extreme uh, about like, do you use spreadsheets? What do you use them for? Why are you using spreadsheets and not purpose-built solutions and so on? Then I got into touch with some researchers that have been researching spreadsheets. Interestingly enough, there isn't a lot of industry research on spreadsheets as such, uh, but uh, the most interesting research I found actually came from the academia so several people there that have been doing interesting things uh, around you know quality assurance or uh, you know risk management around spreadsheets error you know how we, we hear this kind of horror stories of mistakes made in data entry in, in spreadsheets that lead to you know, huge trades or something else that kind of goes goes wrong and, and there has been have been quite a lot of studies done there these, these people also knew a lot about the market in general but probably the most interesting thing i got from from that is that a few of them had actually gathered corpuses of real-world spreadsheets, like the spreadsheets that came out of out of businesses, uh, and they were kind enough to give me access to to that. So that allowed me to go through and analyze these spreadsheets for okay, how big are they? How complex are the models? What are the functions that people are using? Uh, are they using functions at all, or are they just typing in raw data into into the spreadsheets and so on? And you know. And then you could open them up and try to figure out what they were, what they were all about, what the use case that the spreadsheet was trying to solve was. And a couple of realizations there. The biggest one at that stage was probably that a spreadsheet is, it, it is really a development tool. I love telling people this. When you, as soon as you start developing a spreadsheet, as soon as you enter a formula, you're actually coding, you're actually programming. Uh, and you know, most people that use spreadsheets don't see themselves as programmers, but it's true. But what you're coding is you're coding a relationship between data that lives in cells in the spreadsheet, as opposed to code that gets kind of executed from, from top down. It's also much more 
interactive and much more kind of you get your results uh, back immediately. And people are often doing you know fairly complicated things there. And that kind of led me down, okay, let's let's dive into that a little bit more. Uh, and at that stage, I had some theories about what the product, what a product could be. Uh, and that's what kind of left me, uh, kind of moved me to the, you could call it, you know, in hindsight, you can call it the third stage of research, kind of from talking to people to uh, you know, talking to the, the users to kind of talking to the experts and researchers and doing the analysis to the third stage, which was, I started this whole uh, ad campaign on Google, spending, if I remember correctly, $5 a day and just experimenting with keywords that I thought people would be searching for if they had uh, some of the problems that I wanted to solve. And then if they clicked on it, responding to the messaging that I, I and the value propositions that I had come up with. And the good thing is, you know, the, the, the answer was yes, people were searching for uh, those things and they, they were clicking on the ad. And then if they clicked on the app, uh, I sent them to a survey where I asked a lot more detailed questions about things like, okay, what are you trying to do? You know, why aren't other solutions good enough? And how much would you be willing to pay if, if there was a solution or a product out there that, that met, your, met your need? And a surprising amount of people were willing to, to answer that. So with all of this, I had a lot of data to feed into uh, further product decisions before, I mean, I've been doing some prototyping on the side, technically, but uh, I could have done all of this without writing a single line of, of code. And uh, it gave me a very good foundation to, to stand on. So if you had 100 people click on the ad, what percentage yep. of people actually filled out the survey? Uh, if I remember correctly, uh, it was around 16%. So wow. 16 out of 100. So, I mean, and that, that doesn't sound like a lot, but for kind of a random app that you click on and, you know, maybe even after having disappointed them a little bit by not giving them a product they were looking for, but a survey on kind of what that product should look like, that, uh, that is a pretty good percentage. And, and was it the type of uh, users you were targeting, the type of people that were clicking on the ad? Did they confirm the target audience you were going after? Uh, yes and no. What they did validate were the use cases and problems, that the problems existed. Okay, who are, you know, what's the, what's the persona? What's the, what does the buyer look like? And we're still, I mean, that's actually something that we're still honing in even more uh, now. It's great, you know, two years later when, we, when we've actually kind of built a product and we have a beta out and we have, you know, a couple of thousand users using the product, we are still honing exactly where that persona is. But this early information definitely got us started off in, uh, in the right general and actually kind of, you know, the right somewhat granular direction. Yeah, sounds like it. I think it's, it's brilliant what you were able to achieve before even, like you said, writing a line of code on the product side of things. So given the data and the information, the research you already have and your past experience about getting early into the go-to-market aspect of it, how are you planning to take what you're building at Grid to the market? Yeah, so we are to maybe just a little bit uh, about what the product does and, and kind of where, where that came from. So sure. I remember, you know, that there are, like I said before, there are several things that you could kind of dive into. There are several aspects of spreadsheets that you could say, oh, here, you know, this needs to be done better. That, that's an opportunity we should, we should dive into that. But the problem that we we really decided to kind of double down on was that, and I remember specifically kind of a statistic I saw that only 12% of spreadsheet users said that they mainly build spreadsheets for themselves. 
for themselves, uh, which by extension means that 88% of spreadsheet users realize that they're building spreadsheets that are very likely to be shared or communicated with someone else. And whereas spreadsheet software is fairly good when you're kind of pulling the data together and you're building the model and so on, when it comes to communicating it, what you typically do, the most common way today uh, still is that you take an Excel file and you attach it uh, to an email and then you write uh, you know, uh, in the email body what people should be looking at and what it should be, should be doing. And even that kind of means that you have to prepare the spreadsheet quite a lot for others to understand the things that you put together when they open the, the spreadsheet. It also means that you've given up a lot of control. You've given someone else the entire spreadsheet. Uh, so often you either have to kind of remove data before you send it uh, off to them, and you also have to kind of try to guide them. And you know, even with that guidance, they tend to screw up uh, the model that you've built and come back with, you know, totally useless uh, feedback because they, they, you know, they missed the point in it or something like that. So, so that communication is, uh, isn't ideal. W what people do today to compensate for that is they then start copy pasting things out of the spreadsheets into PowerPoints and PDFs. That gives you a way to kind of definitely give them very good narrative uh, around the, the data and so on. But then you've lost all the dynamic of the of the model. You can't allow people in a PowerPoint to kind of play around with some inputs and see the effects that has to doing scenario analysis or planning or something like that. Uh, so we are we're kind of bridging the two. We're giving people a way to make beautiful interactive narratives on top of spreadsheet models and then allow people to to interact with these models uh, on the web. So we're solving problems anywhere from kind of giving up that control over the spreadsheet. You still remain in control of the spreadsheet. You only dispose the things that you want to expose from the spreadsheet. You do that in context with you know all the narrative that you need around that, and give people a guided experience around the the model so that they can they can still play around, but they can only play around with the things that you want them to play around with in context with all the explanations you you need. And then furthermore. This is mobile friendly. Uh, anybody that's tried to read a spreadsheet on a mobile phone knows that that's often not the case. Uh, and uh, it, it is also such that if you need to update the data, you simply need to update the spreadsheet and then everybody that has access to that will get the latest data uh, or have the data, latest data available to them uh, without you doing any further work. So that cycle in, let's say, the, the PowerPoint scenario I was describing before means that you're updating the data, then you update the chart, then you copy the chart, you have to paste that into the right place in the PowerPoint, make sure it's the right size. It, it just becomes tedious. We do all of that. We automate uh, that entire workflow. So saves a lot of time, gives people a better way to get their message across and uh, allows the audience to still interact and you know acquaint themselves with the with the model we we actually we often hear this word uh, hear this word that we make the the models almost tangible you can touch the models and kind of get an understanding a, a tactile understanding for the model if you want so that was the that, that's kind of that's what the product does uh, and your question was about how we then take this to market so we've been in beta now for a few months we went very slow about that, let in 10 people a week to begin with and more and kind of just both kind of hardening the, the technology and the product, but also learning from the behavior of, pro, uh, of people in the product, both on the, you know, who are they and who's getting value out of this, but also what are they doing and, and you know, what's the reason, what, what is the actual kind of problem that they are, they're looking to solve. This has owned the product over the last few, few months. 
The way we take this to market is anybody will be able to start using Grid for free. Today, it's a, an invite-only beta. People can sign up for a waiting list and we let people in gradually over time. We are kind of lifting the gates on that within uh, a couple of months' time. And then anybody can start using Grid for free. But then the, when there is certain functionality that you, you need, that would be a, a paid tier. So it is a kind of bottom-up bottom B2B model, if you want, or a product-led growth model, more or less inter interchangeable terms, where it is solving for, it's a B2B product. You are, we're aiming at people that are looking to solve, they've built a spreadsheet and they're looking to solve certain problems with that. You know, in the, the, the typical keywords people search for when they find us is something like, you know, publish my spreadsheet to web or Excel to HTML, something like that. So they obviously have the spreadsheet and now they need to, need to get that to the, to the web. Uh, and then, yeah, like I said, they can start using it for free and then there's certain functionality. We haven't kind of, we haven't published our pricing plan yet and uh, that's not necessarily just because we're secretive about it. It's also because we're still thinking a little bit about exactly where the paywall will be. But there's uh, functionality such as, for example, embedding, being able to take a model that you've built or a calculator that you've built and, you know, embed that in your own web page or, you know, in your interweb or something like that is probably one of the things that will only be available uh, in a premium version. So, uh, yeah, when I think about the go-to-market, one of the things that a lot of companies struggle with, especially when they're building something on top of something else, is pricing. I'm not sure how much you can share with us, but curious to know, how did you figure out what is the right price point? I know you're still trying to figure out, but is it more experiments? How are you coming to the price point that would make sense for your user? And number two, and this is a much broader question, how do you see grid evolving? Are you seeing grid as a company that you could take IPO that could stand on its own? Do you see it as part of a larger offering and hence would be part of another product? Do you have any idea or at this point you're just focusing on just solving this problem? So in the, I mean, in the long run, we are definitely uh, well, let, let's, let's put it this way. One, one of the first things that we, the founders did when we decided to kind of to start down this route was that we sat down and said, okay, what do we want out of this? Uh, and what gives us joy is kind of see the product that we have all become enamored with kind of the, you know, the, the technology and the, the promise, the, the things that it solves and the, the fact that it's empowering to such a, a large group of people. These are all things that we take pride in. And that's kind of, that's number one. We want to build something that's useful for the world. Uh, we don't want to do that in isolation. And the part of being successful at that is actually building that into a sustainable business. So uh, we've taken in some venture capital to build out the product. But the goal is definitely to turn this into a business that uh, can sustain itself. Whether that then kind of from that position, uh, whether uh, it takes on life as a part of something, some bigger organization or whether we keep growing it and, and, and IPO it remains to be seen. But we, one of the things that we also decided is that we don't want to sell this off early as a technology sale. We want to have built this into a product and a business that has proven that it's actually you know, worthy of, of its own life out there before we start uh, exploring any of that. And that's, you know, that the phase we're at right now is exactly that phase. We've built 
a product, it, it has proven in the data that it is valuable to a large and well-defined group of people. Uh, and now, uh, and that kind of, again, is a good segue into the first part of your question is how we are thinking about pricing. So with the beta program, we have been very thorough in talking to our, our beta users, whether that's with calls. We probably had calls with about 150 of our users over the last uh, couple of months. And that has given us a, a lot of information. And among the things that we ask them about is like, what would, what, so we essentially ask them about two things about where the paywall would be. One, one of them is, what would be the thing that you would miss most? If we took one thing out of the product, what would be the most painful thing that we would remove? Because they're obviously getting all of this for free. And then what would be the most desired additional functionality that uh, we could add? Both of these are kind of a way to gauge, okay, where, where is the value? Where could we either add value or where is the most important value that we're already delivering? And then we also ask them about, you know, both the budgets that they tend to have, but also like how willing they would be to pay for these different things that they, they mentioned. Uh, this helps gauge it. There are also other ways that there are, there are known methods of then asking people survey questions about, you know, about pricing. And we've been doing that for, for the entire beta group as well. So we're honing in on a few things. And I mentioned before uh, embedding as one of the things. This is a thing that comes up with, you know, not a not the not the majority of the users, but it comes up in a context where people say, "I if if you had that, I would be willing to pay." And then they mention a number that's a lot higher than the pricing that we had been thinking about for the individual version. So the, the way we're thinking about going at this at the moment is we will start off with you know there would be a free tier. Everybody can start using this for free and there will probably be a free forever tier to the product. Uh, that has always been the, the vision and, and that also is in line with you know, us wanting to deliver value to a lot of people. But then uh, we will start, off, start by breaking off this pretty highly premium uh, feature that you know, it's roughly 10% of the, the users that mentioned this feature, but they would be willing to pay quite a lot for it. And then later on adding probably another tier or two in between the free version and the, the most premium version, which is, you know, at least the way we're thinking about that first thing we break off. Nice, nice. I, I think that's a lot of really good information on, on how to hone in on what the pricing should be for, for a product that you're building. Thank you so much, Halmar. That was really uh, helpful. In the last few minutes, I have this rapid fire round that I like to ask my guests, which are just short questions that require just short answers. One word would be great, but more is fine too. So you ready for that? Oh, of course. <laughs> okay, great. So, what's your uh, favorite fiction book? I'll go with All the Places You Go by Dr. Seuss. It's a children's book, but and I read it pretty much every day these days, but it's a fantastic book. Oh, why do you read it every day? For my eight-year-old. Oh, cute. What about a business book? On the non-fiction side, I would say that The Short History of Nearly Everything by Bill Bryson is one of my favorite books. What it drove home for me is how important storytelling is in driving home things that can be abstract. So it tells the stories of scientists and people that have discovered interesting things about the world, but you also learn those interesting things in those scientific facts yeah. through those stories. Fantastic. Yeah, I love that book too. Um, what was your last concert you attended? 
I did see the symphony orchestra just before everything closed down before COVID, but the, the proper concert that I, I last went to was actually Thievery Corporation in Boston. Oh yeah, the, the Australian DJs, right? They're Australian, yeah. I think, right? Yeah, they, they are a multinational band, but I think that they are originated in Australia. Yeah, I've heard them. Nice. Well, thank you so much, Ahalmar, for um, being a guest on my show and for sharing such valuable information on how to research before you start, how to start a company, how to scale it globally, how to think about it globally from the beginning. Of course. Thanks for thanks for having me and, and good luck with the show, Anita. Yeah, thank you. Thank you.